This evening, please. First Corinthians chapter number two. And we're going to read together verses one through five this evening. That will be the text that we will look at. First Corinthians chapter two, verse number one. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And let's pray. Our Father, I pray your help tonight in this moment in the delivery of this message, but even more so that we as a church would not simply understand the content of the gospel, but understand the way in which it is to be delivered and the way in which it is to be understood. And so we ask, please, for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul has begun this letter to these people by rebuking them for their love affair with what he calls worldly wisdom or man's wisdom. And we might wish that Paul would articulate some clear-cut examples for us, but the Spirit of God deliberately chooses not to do that, folks. Corinthians is a template for all churches, and we will no doubt make mention of that many times as we work our way through the book because there are so many passages in Corinthians that the modern church approaches and rejects on the basis that those were cultural issues. And that since culture has changed, the things that Paul stated and argued are not applicable to us. But I would argue on the basis of, if nothing else, 1 Corinthians 1-2, in which Paul is making the point that we all have the same Savior and we're all bound under the same context, so to speak. That what we have in Corinthians, folks, rather than simply Paul wrestling with cultural issues, we have God speaking about eternal issues. In other words, worldly wisdom or man's wisdom is going to rear its head in every generation. And if God just gave us two or three examples of what was going on in Corinth, we might think God was only talking about those two or three things. But God is concerned about the intrusion of worldly wisdom into the very fabric of a church. And since the wisdom of the world is going to be in a constant state of flux, the church needs then to understand that it is a danger and what God expects us to do to circumvent that danger. 
And the primary place that Paul sees worldly wisdom in the opening chapters of the book is the peculiar way in which the Corinthians have come to believe that the person who is preaching to them is somehow responsible for their spiritual condition. So that some are saying, well, I'm, I'm from Paul. And others are saying, I'm from Apollos. And yet others are saying, well, I'm of Peter, Cephas. Others are taking the more high road. Well, I'm of Jesus. Paul will condense that to two men, himself and Apollos, in chapter number 3. But, but they have cultivated, and, and there is a three-year gap, most likely, between the start of the church at Corinth and the occasion of this letter. Paul was there a year and a half. He's been gone about a year and a half. And within that three-year span, the church has taken this direction. It has turned towards worldly wisdom. And one of the things that Paul wants to do is not only point out to them that that direction is wrong, but he wants them to understand the way that wrong direction is impacting them. It's not just like folks. We could embrace a worldly wise model of ministry right now, and it would hinder the church's growth and development, but we would be okay. We would also suffer the consequences of that decision. And so Paul has talked to them about both the fact that the content of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel are God's methodology for the salvation of men, that Christ died, that this message needs to be preached, that worldly wisdom, the, the magnification of men. I mean, look, and we just saw this, right? And I'm not trying to be critical. I obviously don't have any idea about the lady's spiritual condition. I don't have any knowledge about the life that she lived. But there have been a number of people who have testified to Queen Elizabeth's genuine faith in Jesus Christ, which we would hope to be true. But then upon that basis have suggested that her influence as the queen would bring others to faith in Jesus Christ. That's a problem. If you only believe in Jesus because the queen believes in Jesus, that's a problem. That's what Paul is arguing. That's one of the things that Paul is arguing. And so he says to them, you see your calling. Look at the church at Corinth. Look at what it looks like. It doesn't look like the product of what you are pursuing hasn't accomplished that. And now in these verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul reminds them of his own conduct among them. When Paul came in, what did he do? What kind of ministry did he have to these people. And so we're going to take these five verses this evening, and rather than just start in verse 1 and walk down through verse number 5, we're going to look at them thematically. How does Paul talk to the Corinthians about his own evangelistic ministry experience in Corinth? 
Well, he begins by pointing out to them how he did not act. What he did not do. Verse number one. Brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech. What does he mean by excellency of speech? Something like lofty words. Paul was clear. We'll go back and we'll, I mean, we'll take a little bit of time to, to, to make, I'm, right, I'm telling you what the Bible says about Paul's teaching, not Ken Largent's opinion about what Paul's teaching. Paul was always very clear in his message. Paul was always accurate in his message. But he never tried to speak in such a way that his manner of speech was attractive. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians, he will point out that the Corinthians feel like as a public speaker, Paul is pretty bad. That nobody would go to listen to Paul speak because he is an orator. And in fundamentalist work circles, we don't use the word orator. That sounds too secular. We use the word pulpiteer. That the guy is a great pulpiteer. Several years back, we had a student who was telling me about a guest speaker that they had at their church. He said, man, it was really something. He actually stood on the pulpit. Well, if you'd give me enough time, I could probably get up on the pulpit. <clears throat> and is this true of many things in my life at this point, at this stage in my life? It is not doing them that is the big problem. It is the consequence of doing them that is the big problem. How would I get off of the pulpit? But if I did run around and get up on the pulpit, would it do anything? Would it, would it help you? Well, it would certainly maybe be a more enjoyable way to spend 40 minutes watching me run around. But does it accomplish anything? I did not come with lofty Words. Neither did he come, verse number one, nor with wisdom. And in verse number four, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. And, and let me just interject here, folks. I, I, I'm not in any way opposed to a man being much more animated than I am in the pulpit. That is not the issue. As long as it is not affected, as long as he is not coming to the pulpit to put on a show, I have a pastor friend who had a couple that was in his church for a while and they were obviously in two completely different camps and, and he finally said to them, why are you here? And, and the man said to him, you're the best show in town. And he said, I said to the man, I've never been more offended by anything that's been said to me in all the years I've been a pastor. This is not a show. This is not a show. He did not come with his message prepared in such a way as to how it would be best received by human beings. He did not entice them. If you look at verse number 4, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. And what he means is they're using human wisdom to persuade them. Because that's what the word entice means there. Right? To us, enticement is a crime. Enticement is trying to get somebody to do something that is 
at best immoral and quite possibly illegal. But all Paul means is, I was trying to persuade you. And folks, this is one of the reasons I said what I just said about God's opinion and not mine. Paul did try to persuade people. Paul tried very hard to get people to believe the gospel. And he was never mechanical about that. He said to the Ephesians, I taught you with tears. Trying to persuade people to believe the gospel message is not the problem. Using human wisdom to get people to believe the gospel message is the problem. Trying to manipulate them through human means is the problem. In 1 Corinthians 2.4, the word is an adjective. It modifies the noun words. Enticing words. But in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul uses the same word as a verb. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So were Paul preaching to us this evening, he would be on a mission to persuade us. And if Paul were preaching to a crowd of lost people, he would be very much trying to persuade them. But the point that Paul is making, folks, is this. I will persuade you through the Bible, not through human wisdom. I will use the Bible to persuade you. If you want to take a moment and turn to Acts chapter 17, let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Again, folks, none of us would ever look at the life and ministry of Paul and think that he was dull, boring, mechanical, indifferent. I have a job to do. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Take it or leave it. Nobody cares. You don't care. I don't care. God doesn't care. I've done my duty. That was not Paul. Acts 17.2, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Opening and alleging, we're going to come back to those two words, that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. The word opening means he's making a point. Right? I'm going to make a point, and here's my point. Jesus that you crucified is the Messiah, and he rose from the dead. Alleging. And again, to us, to make an allegation is to make an accusation. But what the word refers to is the fact that Paul supported his opening with Scripture. Here's my point. The Jesus that the Jews crucified, he was God's Messiah. God killed him, God raised him from the dead. If you'll believe in him, he will save you now. Let me take the Bible and show you why that's true. And he he tried to persuade people. He tried to get them to believe his message. He reasoned with them. He answered their objections. He listened to their unbelieving comments. But he never went anywhere and said, now these people like a good joke. So I'm going to tell one about three rabbis who go into a bar. 
And he never said, this is a young crowd and they're very energetic and so I'm going to come swooping in on a zip line. He said, we're going to take our Bibles and we're going to tell you what God did and we're going to tell you what God said and we're going to try and establish that from the Scriptures and you really need to believe this. Your eternal soul hinges upon your faith in this. Just listen to what Paul wrote to this church in 2 Corinthians 2.17. For we are not as many. We are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. We are not as many. There are lots of people doing it. There are lots of people doing it today, folks. There are lots of people today whose ministry mindset is People don't want to know about God. They don't want to hear the gospel. Let's come in, give them a good time, and we'll just slip some gospel in the back door and they won't, they won't have any choice but to listen to it. The word corrupt there is actually the word for retail. We are not like many people who are treating the gospel of Christ as if it is a product you should buy. That's actually the word to be sold at retail. And Paul said, I don't do that. I didn't do that to you. You shouldn't do that to anybody. So Paul begins by talking to them about how he did not speak to them. Brethren, when I came to you, this is what I did not do. Secondly, then, Paul explains to them how he did act and speak. <clears throat> I did not come as a man selling a product. I'm not the Christian version of the door-to-door -door salesman. But I did come <clears throat> with a singular purpose. Verse number one, I brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. He declared God's word. Rather than peddle it as a product, he announced it as a messenger. This is what God has said. This is what God has done. This is what God demands. And therefore, you need to do it. Now, again, folks, he did not do that mechanically. He did not do that indifferently. He didn't do it with one eye on his watch because there was something else he wanted to do. But he wanted people to know what God said and who God was and what God wanted of people. And so in verse number 2, he was determined. This word is used a hundred times, over a hundred times in the New Testament. Usually you find it as the word judge or judged. But I came to this conscious, willful decision. I knew what Corinth was. 
I knew what would ring the Corinthians' bell. I knew how to gain a crowd of Corinthians. But that was not my agenda. I made this conscious decision. Back to verse number 2. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ, who He is, and Him crucified, what, he ha- what happened to Him. That was His message. Now again, folks, don't think that Paul just stood up and said, Jesus is the Messiah and He died. Jesus is the Messiah and He died. But His content was, His focus was, Jesus is the Messiah and He died and rose again. And He came then in verse number 3 with genuine fear. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now this is an amazing statement for a man who has suffered the way that he has suffered for the sake of the gospel. But I don't think what Paul is talking about, and we could debate it forever and ever, I don't think that Paul is focusing in verse number 3 upon his apprehension about being stoned with rocks or beaten with clubs. I think Paul is approaching the Corinthians this way. These are people who are very much enamored of human wisdom and that's what they want to listen to and I'm not going to do that and I just don't have a lot of human confidence that this is going to go well. In Acts chapter 16, we read about Paul's Macedonian call and the Macedonian churches are Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And in every place there that he went, he encountered both opposition and physical resistance. And there he goes to Athens, and then he goes to Corinth. And when he is on his way to Corinth, or in Corinth, in Acts chapter 18 and verse number 10, God has told him, God gives him this assurance. I have many people in Corinth. So what is the framework then again for this fear and trembling? Well, he has right, he has no confidence in his human ability to win them. I mean, this is one of the things that I was taught, folks, and I'm really not on a tirade against my alma mater, but we got told this on a regular basis in Fisherman's Club. If you want to win some, you've got to be winsome. And much of what we learned in evangelism wasn't really about Bible doctrine or how to take the Old Testament and prove that Jesus was the Messiah. It was about how to talk to people and how to make a pitch. How to get them to listen to you. How to get them to not close the door in your face. Because after all, if you want to win some, you've got to be winsome. And Paul stood at the sign that says, Welcome to Corinth, and went, If this relies upon my human personality, this is doomed from the outset. And if this relies on my ability to make some kind of a connection with the Corinthians to show them that I'm just like they are, this is doomed from the outset.
And so, verse number four. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power. He came with biblical conviction, with real evidence, a clear contrast to human wisdom. Not, I know what you are, and I'm very much like what you are, and we're going to put Jesus in here, but we're, not, and I'm not talking about cultural things, folks, but we're, we're not at all the same. And Jesus is radically different. And you need to listen to who He is and what He has done and what He says to you. And as we've already seen, folks, from what Paul has said, the, the price that anybody will pay to believe that will be their human wisdom. You will have to surrender your own ideas about who God is and what salvation is and whether or not you deserve to have it. So here's the question, right? The word demonstration refers to making it known. And how did Paul make it known? And I would just suggest to you, not with fireworks, Paul made it known this way, right? Because this is part of what he's arguing to the Corinthians. He will do this on numbers of occasions. How do you know that this, to, to, let me put it in these, how do you know that this worked? Because I came with a Bible message and preached a Bible message and you believed it. That was the evidence. Now here's what happens, folks. Right? Sometimes you go someplace or you pastor a church and you preach it and nobody believes it and then what we start to do is second guess the methodolo- second guess the methodology well Paul did not really have that problem because when Paul went to Corinth people got saved and they got saved as Paul did what he had always done he took the scriptures opened the scriptures said here's who Jesus is Here's what he did. Here's all the biblical proof for that. And the people responded in faith. Not lights, not flashy things, not fireworks, not earthquakes. But people believed the gospel message and they got saved. So Paul points out to them what he did not do and Paul points out to them what he did do And finally, in verse number 5, Paul points out to them what his agenda was for doing it this way. (coughs) Why not? Why not bring all the powers of Paul's superior intellect to bear on the problem of how to bring an unpopular gospel to a sophisticated people who need to hear it? What's wrong with that? Where could that possibly go bad? And it so often happens, folks, when you come across the little word that in the context like this in which it is used. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power 
The that actually means so that. <clears throat> it is a little tiny Greek word that carries the idea of purpose. This is why I did that. There was something that I wanted to do. And here is what I wanted, and I wanted it for you. So that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that you would understand that God really did those things. And God really said those things. And that you would build your life upon a trustworthy and reliable God. And that you would not contaminate your faith by mingling it with human wisdom. The word stand simply means to exist. So that your faith would have its existence in the power of God. What do we believe, folks? We believe in the power of God. We might not even think of that that way. We might not even think, right? You might listen to me say what I'm saying and wonder, what is Largent doing and where is he going? But where does our faith stand? It stands on the power of God. And when people are persuaded of the power of God, then it really does shape the decisions that they make in the way that they live because they understand that God is alive and He is active. But supposing, folks, that in, in a sincere effort to help people, we sell the gospel of Jesus Christ as a product. <clears throat> are you depressed? Jesus is the antidepressant. But what's that going to do to your faith, folks, if you're saved six months or six years and you wake up one day and realize that you're terribly discouraged? That Jesus has been sold to you as the great happiness pill and you're not. What happens to that person's faith? Or supposing that Jesus is peddled to you as the fix for your marriage. But then your marriage isn't fixed. Then what? then where does your faith rest then? What do you do with faith that was anchored not in what really the Bible really says about Jesus and who He is, but about what you wanted Jesus to do for you? Or supposing that Jesus is sold as an avenue to financial prosperity and then you end up not rich. Now look, folks, the Lord has lots to say about what we would call depression, and He has lots to say about marriage, and He is very interested in marriages, and He is very interested in your finances. In fact, He has promised that, that He will take care of you. But building your faith upon that kind of appetite will very often backfire. Their faith will not stand in the power of God. It will stand in some human hope that we have been offered. 
The gospel is proclaimed in the Bible as the solution to our most pressing problem, which is our alienation from God and his hostility to us because of our sin. That is a far greater concern than our financial well-being and our mental health and our marriages. He is the problem, he is the solution to the biggest problem we have. This is the way Paul argued it in Ephesians chapter 1 of Jesus. What is the, about Jesus, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And here's the thing, folks, Right? Everybody is the same in that Jesus Christ died for them and is willing to save them and everybody needs that salvation. But Jesus doesn't treat us all equally. We don't all get equal measures of faith. We don't all get equal measures of happiness. We don't all get equal measures of trouble or of the absence of trouble. He never presents himself as a one-size-fits-all in that kind of world. He just doesn't. He's not doing that. And so Paul said, here's what I did not do. I did not come to try and entice you with man's wisdom. I didn't peddle the gospel to you. With great personal apprehension, I just came in and preached to you the Bible. And you believed it. And your faith stands there who God is and who Christ is and what God is doing and what Christ did. And whatever happens, then you can always take your faith back right there that Jesus died for me. All right, I'm going to stop there this evening. If you want to get your prayer bulletin out, um, a couple of updates.